Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week, we are rerunning our interview with Nick Kroll from October 2018, in which we talked about the second season of Big Mouth. Since then, Big Mouth has aired three more seasons, and starting tomorrow, March 18th, Kroll and Co. will be debuting a spin-off series, Human Resources, a workplace comedy set in the world of the monsters of Big Mouth. So you have your hormone monsters, your shame wizards, and your love bugs, etc., and so on. Where Big Mouth focuses on puberty, Human Resources takes the same hilarious, grotesque, unflinching look at adult emotions. But back to Big Mouth, which, if you haven't seen, is based on Nick's childhood relationship with his best friend and Big Mouth co-creator Andrew Goldberg, in which Nick was an extremely late bloomer and Andrew an extremely horny bloomer. Things you need to know for the scene you're about to hear. Andrew is voiced by John Mulaney. Nick voices Nick, Lola, and Andrew's hormone monster, Maurice. Lola is mad at Andrew because he wouldn't pants her, even though it is National Pantsing Week. In the previous scene, Lola expressed her frustration over this by pantsing Nick, showing his penis to the entire school, including his crush. An event based on real-life Nick's own childhood. Andrew is just generally disgusted with himself. The first people, or I guess beings, you're about to hear are Maurice and the shame wizard voiced by David Thewlis. So, here is... Nick Kroll. I'm surprised you're not all over that kid. Yeah, his parents have given him such high self-esteem. Besides, I'm more interested in the game these two are playing. Ruin my first date, Andrew. Like, why wouldn't you just, like, pants me? I get a little shy when it comes to aggressively removing someone else's clothes. Oh, my God. You're such a nerd, but not in the cool way, like, when good-looking people wear glasses. You're like a nobody. Yes, this little oil drum gets ya. I think I can wear with this. You suck, Andrew, whatever your last name is. My last name is Glauberman. Glauberman? Ugh, perfect. I know, it's a stupid name. That's the stupidest name I ever it heard. It has dumb letters in it, so it must suck, yeah, right? Yeah, it sucks so hard. Oh, man, all this verbal abuse is making my nips hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm a worthless, boring nobody. You're actually worse than a nobody because you're just a disgusting, slimy little worm. Come here, you big block. Ah! Wait, wait, wait. Say something mean about how clammy my hands are. I'm gonna wring you out like a sponge! Oh, you're a sociopath. (laughs) Outstanding. (laughs) We are here with Nick Kroll. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start right with, uh, I want to talk about how a scene like that is sort of like the basic of how you script it, you know, how how much of like, are you writing things in the room and your the most basic sense of like, how is the show written? I mean, I would say going way back to the beginning of a season, we, we have some ideas of things that we want to hit, things, uh, big ideas. So let's say the, the biggest idea for season two in 
as related to this scene and a major portion of this season is uh, the idea of a shame wizard. Mm -hmm. So uh, Andrew Goldberg, who I created the show with alongside uh, Jen Flackett and and Mark Levin, uh, came to us uh, w- in thinking about season two that he was like, I think we should have like a, a shame character. And he, I can't remember what he said, like a shame monster. And I was like, I yeah. think it should be a shame wizard. I think there's, cause <laughs> there's some sort of spell that the shame puts over us and haunts us with. So it begins there. Then our room opens up and we start to talk about what the season will look like. We have this shame wizard. How will that manifest itself? So we then think about, okay, what would be a good inciting incident for Andrew's shame? And that becomes Andrew gets caught masturbating to Nick's sister Leah's bathing suit that she has hung in the pool house. Uh, Leah sees him jerking off. Uh, Andrew takes off from the house and the shame wizard sort of follows him and we see the beginning of the shame wizard. Then it becomes, uh, what are some good examples or ways to manifest that or different, what are different manifestations of how shame would play out on a boy like Andrew? Um, I have all the characters on the wall behind me in the writer's room so that I'm sort of looking around and seeing like, who would be fun to play with in this scene? And all of a sudden it became very clear that a, some sort of relationship between Andrew and Lola would be a fun relationship mm-hmm. to see play out. One, just because we hadn't seen that combination of characters. Um, obviously, it's Andrew and Lola, but it's also in a, a different relationship for me and John Mulaney to play with. And as soon as it was like, what about Andrew and Lola? That just got very exciting. And then it becomes, how do we, what is it that they're coming together? What is the, you know, and we start to work backwards off of different versions of relationships where there's Nick and Devin going to the mini golf course and we're bringing various stories together. Then I was very interested what I see with Andrew and Lola. Andrew's filled with shame. And then all of a sudden he becomes maybe physically excited by a girl telling him that he's a piece of shit. (laughs) And because I was interested in the idea of like maybe the origin story of seeing how someone would get into like BDSM. How does it, how do we see a guy who 30 years from now might want to get his like balls stepped on by high heels? So what is the, where does this begin? And maybe it begins with a kid filled with shame, some girl telling him that he is a piece of shit and him getting turned on by it. Yeah. Before you started, you met with Lauren Bouchard of yes. Bob's Burgers, who uh, he, he I don't know if he pioneered this, but it's sort of what he's known for is he has as many people record at the same time, so you can improvise. And, yeah. an, with, and animation is famously a thing where there isn't much an, in, impro, improvisation. Can you say a little bit what you learned from him and then sort of go into how a scene like, if, if how applies a scene like this? Lauren was super helpful to us uh, as we were going out to explore different ways of doing this. We knew from my experience in animation. Uh, I was on a show called Life and Times of Tim, which followed a very similar, everybody as much as possible was in the room together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of things were discovered. I mean, a bunch of um, a bunch of my stuff was sort of stuff that I improvised in the room. And, and having done various kinds of shows, the uh, Kroll Show and The League that were all very 
loosely scripted. I knew I wanted to bring that into the show, and but I didn't know exactly how we would do it. I mean, I did it on Tim, but it was different uh, in this case because our show is incredibly scripted and also always leaving room for improvisation. Lauren was very helpful in being like, you know, how do you do it? How does, and hearing and watching him having done an episode of Bob's Burgers, how he then gives notes and helps people through it. And how do you then be like, oh, that was great improvised. Let's do that again. We took some of the stuff, what he said. I mean, it's, you know, it's the tricky thing and the beauty of animation is you can get an incredible cast together. You can assemble a cast that would be impossible to assemble, you know, live action. In in our case, it's Mulaney, Jesse Klein, Jenny Slate, Jason Manzukis, Maya Rudolph, Fred Armisen, uh, Jordan Peele. And then it extends out into our broader cast of Andrew Reynolds and Gina Rodriguez this season and and John Daly and Seth Morris, Jessica Chav. I mean, it's a crazy yeah. list of people who are so busy that you don't you just can't get them mm-hmm. all together in a room all the time. But as much as possible, I'm there with as many of the people as I yeah. can be with. And especially the stuff, you know, in the first couple seasons of of as much as possible to get the rhythms of what we do together. I'm trying to remember this specific scene. I knew that it would be fun to do this yeah. with John. Um, anything that's uh, more physical and, and almost sexual in nature, <laughs> it's really helpful to have people together. Yeah, I don't know why. In a different way than you're writing a big joke, that's like this is a set piece joke. When you've got two people, you want to feel when two kids are, you know, when two characters are kissing, you kind of want to feel them together as much as possible. Yeah. So I think we had that. I can't remember what exactly was improvised. Uh, but I do, as I remember, like, you know, me being like, Glauberman, what a stupid name. And John being like, yeah, it is a stupid name. I think probably was, uh, you know, an improvised moment. I think about this more often than I should, which is it's funny about comedians specifically because they end up kissing their friends often. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Have you ever kissed John before? Have I ever kissed John before? I don't think Gil and George have ever kissed. No, I guess not. I'm trying. Oh well, Andrew and Nick's kissed in season one. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> yes, when Andrew is struggling to figure out if he's gay or not, Nick uh, kisses him as a friend to just give give John to give Andrew a sense of if he would feel anything. So we kissed in in season one. I don't think any of our other characters have kissed. I mean, what has happened is I voiced the hormone monster and. Uh, John voices Andrew, who's constantly masturbating. So I have been present and sure. encouraging of John to masturbate a lot of times. And there is a there is a romantic quality to Gil and George mm. his relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not sexual. I'm, there was I can't remember what it was there. Someone was asking if it's a if it's a gay relationship. But like well, no, it's like they they don't have sex. Well, I guess couples over seven. Yes, yes. There are elements. I mean, there you could not have a more intimate relationship sure. than George and Gill. And I think the joke was that they've been friends and doing drugs for 50 years together. Undoubtedly, there are, there are definitely a few times where, where George had sex with Gill. Yeah. And George <laughs> definitely pimped Gill out um, to like to like wealthy Saudi men. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the years, we, we definitely believe strongly that that happened. When uh, I heard you want to talk about the scene, I was like, oh, it's interesting he pick a scene he's not in because I forgot that you do the voice <laughs> of Because like, well, he does the voice of Nick. It's like, and Lola's this person. Yes, like, yes. There's something about how animation allows you to completely forget 
get that that in a way yeah. that your previous characters did. But I I want to talk a little bit about the creation of the voice, how that voice then became Liz or mm-hmm. a version of Liz, and how that voice then became a child of Lola on that show. Yeah. How how what is that sort of genesis? Uh, the the voice uh, started, uh, I don't know how many years ago now. Uh, my girlfriend at the time and I would do those voices. And it was always like the voice of a pushy publicist mm-hmm. who was just sort of like, just do it. Like, I know you don't like, it's a photo shoot. It's in Antarctica, but you don't get to go outside. But it's a cold room and it's for penthouse and just do it. You know, it was just like this sort of sweet, but then just trying to get you to do something you didn't want Mm. to do. Um, And she and I would do that voice with each other. And when we were doing the Kroll Show pilot, I sort of was like, well, there's this kind of character voice girl that um, and and the room sort of cracked the idea of it's like, oh, it's publicity. These two girls named Liz. And it's this uh, it's a reality show. And then um, my girlfriend uh, at the time uh, did not make herself available to uh, fly back to shoot the pilot, mm-hmm. which uh, I, as soon as I shot the pilot and went to New York, she broke up with me. Sure. And I was like, oh, this makes more sense <laughs> as to why uh, she didn't uh, make uh, go the extra mile to be. Uh, but it was a sure. blessing because it then meant that uh, we went to Jenny Slate who I knew had done a similar sort of voice. I'd heard her doing stand-up and done a similar voice at times. Uh, and so uh, we ended up doing it with – I ended up doing it with Jenny, which uh, it was obviously incredibly yeah. fruitful. Um, and so we just – yeah, we, we did Liz and Liz on that show, and it was one of my favorite things to do and, and one of the things that I think popped off of that show more than more than a lot of other things. And then when we went to do Big Mouth – I don't I can't remember how early on we knew that we wanted to do this character but I think it was like you know fleshing out the world beyond the the core group of kids Nick, Andrew, Jay, Missy and Jesse uh we wanted to start to fill in with more uh, for sure female characters <laughs> so you know how, how what a great a, a version of equality to have a, a male <laughs> sure. voicing a, a a girl character especially the man in charge yes exactly <laughs> at first in my head for a second it's like is that character named liz and i was like no it's named lola but like in what way is that lola this voice um it's really you know more than anything it's just the voice yeah. i don't really think of her as liz um they feel very distinct to me and you know, largely because it's a child versus an adult, the similarities are the voice and the and the physical manifestation of a, a sort of a boxy, bigger girl, mm-hmm. um, as Bib, Big Liz was on on Kroll Show. Uh, Lola, it was also good, I think, because there's that girl in seventh grade that has matured and is big and like takes up a lot of. Uh, space and oxygen in a room um, and it was oftentimes the girl that I would like slow dance with in seventh mm-hmm. grade where it's like a boy who's like four nine and a girl who's five six sure. and the boy comes up to the girl's boobs I was like we have to have a girl who feels and looks like that so Lola sort of fit that and then but what the really what we started to discover as we wrote Lola is like this real um and I think she takes hold in season two much more than season one, which is like a constant um, 
self-revelation, self-revelations of, of what is going on in her inner life, mm-hmm. the lack of parenting that's happening at home. I mean, Lola's got a, is a very lonely girl and has a lot, has a really, has a mom who's really not present, who's in weird relationships with bizarre men that we never see. We never see Lola's mom, but in season two, we were excited to have Andrew and her have some sort of relationship, partly because it was really helpful for Andrew's character, but also so that we could like see what Lola's house was like. And it's like a townhouse that her mom has staged to be sold and the TV's not real and the microwave doesn't work and she thaws out like margarita lean cuisines in the <laughs> in the sink it's yeah. just it's so it's like this girl who you on surface uh, you might remember from your middle school who was like kind of bossy and maybe kind of a bitch and maybe sort of part of the a henchman for the most popular girl but then you get to know that girl and you see like you see the the sort of crushing loneliness of her yeah. life and and hopefully it starts to make sense how a girl like that becomes that yeah, way yeah the sort of the need for attention becomes less self-serving and more like desperate and not in a mean way but like she just literally just wants someone to pay attention to her yeah uh i want to ask how did the insights for that part of that character evolve and what influences having specifically a female co-creator of the show and female women in the room influence having a more nuanced version of that character i mean first off the to answer the second half of the question having jen flackett as one of our creators and executive producers what is, is she's such an important force on the show you know obviously it's the story of andrew and i and and our childhood but so much of what we were interested in from the beginning and i think in season two have been able to explore more is the female uh perspective of puberty of and it felt like culturally there had been a lot of dissection of what it was like for boys to go through puberty and not nearly as much of what it's like for girls to go through puberty and not and not limiting the stories to like a girl gets her period obviously that's like the second episode of the season but really uh, of season one but it really about like girls are get horny and girls have different issues and and season two you really see that with jesse who is a voice on the show but was helpful and in in, early on and in 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 helping us figure out what the show was Mm -hmm. and who this character was and really season two it's jesse is parents are going through divorce and we really wanted to explore what that meant and you know how that relates to her hormone monstrous and what how kids act out and you know they shoplift they try drugs and and experiencing that Mm -hmm. through through jesse's eyes um, so having Jen in there was incredibly important and having all of our our, our staff uh, uh, as much as possible a, you know, equal footing for men and women in the room. Um, and we have Emily Altman and Kelly Galuska and, and a number of other uh, great female voices in the room and Emily and, and Kelly have been there from the beginning and were so incredibly are so incredibly important to the show. As far as Lola goes, they're incredibly helpful, and I don't want this to like me tooting my own horn, sure. but I, I, <laughs> I feel pretty responsible for sure. what Lola says and how she says it, um, and I don't know why, um, <laughs> but like there was a, I think you know, because we're always just pitching jokes out in the room, and there's like a joke about like that Lola's mom gave her money to have a breast reduction bought. Like I spent it on a pretty little liars meet and greet. (laughs) And it's just like, I think I sort of sort of like spit that out one day in the room. And it was like, 
Oof. Like <laughs> everything about that yeah. statement is such a bummer, but also just gives you context for how she is, who she is. So, but I'll also everybody I, I, I take I walk back my statement of taking credit for Lola. Sure. Everybody knows some version of Lola. Um, as an adult and as a woman, and and everybody I think enjoys pitching on on her because it's she's living so. She and Jay, I was talking to Andrew Goldberg about it, like his favorite characters, and he was kind of like, I really like Steve, Lola, and Jay because they're kind of the most lonely, <laughs> and they're the most, and in their loneliness are reveal their loneliness in various ways. Yeah. What I like about this scene is the relationship between the shame wizard and the hormone monster really, like, evolved because they're sort of like colleagues. They're not, like, nemesis. They're just sort of, like, talking. And and you sort of realize they are they are colleagues. Like, you sort of, though the wizard was sort of designed to be a sort of nemesis to the uh, monster, they're more just sort of, like, different sides of things. Like, it's because the shame monster reveals not to be all bad. Yeah. And the... In so much as the hormone monster last season wasn't necessarily all good. So how did sort of the, whatever dichotomy you describe as, how did that evolve? And, you know, and specifically beyond sort of shame as an interesting thing, like how did we did you think about shame weaving into different parts of these people's lives? You know, I think after season one, we had established that these kids have uh, hormone monsters. And, but it felt like, to just limit the idea that a kid has a hormone monster that's driving everything mm-hmm. or that adults uh, similarly, that we just have our id that drives us it would do a disservice to like the complexities of like the emotional and scientific like construction of a, of the human personage, mm-hmm. you know? So as I said, Andrew came in with this idea for this f- force of shame that became the shame wizard. And I think, the idea that yes, the 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 hormone monster is scared of the shame wizard early in the in the season, and then you see moments where they are kind of working together, that they are colleagues, and in the last episode of the season, we sort of go backstage, as we say, and you start to see the inner workings of the shame wizard and the mm-hmm. depression kitty, and that they're all of these different yeah. parts of um, kids and adults, um, and I think. Again, uh, you know, the idea that the hormone monster and the shame wizard are kind of uh, colleagues observing and affecting this kid, Andrew, um, felt to me like, you know, the way these things work, sometimes they work in contrast to each other and sometimes they work in tandem. Um, As I said, like, I was interested in seeing, you know, seeing, oh, how a shame could inform someone's uh, desires. And I think, like... We had written and voiced much of this season before the Me Too movement took hold Mm -hmm. last fall. And when I started to read and see all the stuff coming out from different uh, people involved who had been called out for their behavior, you know, I was like, in the parlance of our show, I was like, well, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of hormone monster stuff here. Um, But also, to me, there's like a lot of shame wizard stuff. The idea of like, you know, masturbating in front of a woman who doesn't want you to do it, to me, is like a very shameful act. It's like a thing of, I'm a piece of shit. I'm doing this to you. It's a status play. 
but also I'm gross and I know it and it kind of turns me mm. on and I don't to me I'm like oh that's shame wizard is 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 very much a part of this thing as much as the hormone monster is as well and I think we were interested in kind of, you know, trying to figure out where things are working together for good or bad. It, it's interesting how it manifests in this season of the show where it's just sort of like something something happens with Andrew and Lola, which isn't necessarily assault, but it's sort of like not good. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think it is interesting that a show, what I think this season especially, it becomes clear that like this is a, sh- this is a show made by adults about – how um, middle school shapes later psychologies. Like, yeah. it's very much from the perspective of, like, this is this is making lasting damage. Yes, yes, correct. Because <laughs> I was thinking about, there's a, I think you're, there's this TED Talk that, that you've yes. referenced by Brene Brown, who is a psychologist, and the part that I found most interesting, which is, she says, guilt is I did something bad and shame is I am bad. Yes. Which is, you're talking about, a psychology of like, oh, I am defining myself as bad. Yes. And is is that what sort of attracts you most about how this show, those about teens, could talk about you are a uh, person, how old are you now? No, I'm 40. If you are a 40-year-old man. Yeah. Is that what it attracts you about doing a show about the teen years? Well, I think it's like, you know, as someone who's now, I, I, I this is a side note, I find the term who had to, I have therapy, who has therapy. I find that a very wor- weird sure. terminology, but as someone who's, who's been in therapy now for, you know, uh, uh, over a decade, um, and ha- is still talking about like the thing, the decisions and things that I'm doing today as a 40 year old man are like deeply affected by the things that I was doing or happened to me as a 13 year old boy that I think like, it's so present in our lives that puberty and middle school is forming so many of the patterns and foundations for yeah. our behavior for the rest of our lives. And I think we're spending the rest of our lives trying to either embrace or correct those things. And so, and I think shame is something that really takes hold around puberty because all of a sudden you're having these sexual desires. And, you know, shame isn't all bad. Yeah. Shame. I think took hold as a way for societies to stop people from doing terrible things to other people. Then it becomes too prevalent in certain people's lives and takes over in a way that is unhealthy. And I think shame affects different kids in different ways. For Andrew, it's sexual stuff. For Nick, he got, I got, he, he, I (laughs) got pants in seventh grade and I was fully exposed to the girl that I had a crush on throughout my childhood. Which, no, it is, happens in the scene right before the scene. Yes. Yes. And it, it is something that, um, that happened to me and had like a profound effect on me for the rest of my life in various ways. And, and I think we, we're all kind of dealing with it. And I think when I, when, when we found this, the Brene Brown talk about shame and the, the distinction between I made a mistake and I am a mistake, I think I, I, this might be, I don't know what the word for racist about religion is, but <laughs> it's a, I think a distinction between Catholicism and Judaism. Sure. Like the, I think Judaism, guilt feels very present in Judaism. Mm. I made a mistake, which can be terrible and crushing and Catholicism, I mean, it's original sin. Like there's, I am, I am inherently sin. Mm-hmm. It feels a little more like I am a mistake. Um, so it was interesting to have John Mulaney, a Catholic kid, playing Andrew Glauberman, a Jewish kid, 
and and I think he was able to access a lot of that because of the similarities. And yet there is some distinction there. And I think our it is us looking back on our history. It's an it is this weird thing. It's a nostalgic look back, but it's also present day. So there are elements to these kids that are very much 21st century kids versus like early 90s kids as we were. But we're constantly trying to figure out like what what are the lasting impact of these things and also how do you overcome them? And I think what Brene Brown talked uh, talks about is that, and I'm going to screw it up, but it's basically that shame is this Petri dish of silence, secrecy, and one other thing that I'm not remembering. But it's in in this season, what we're trying to do with these kids is Shame is it's at its most powerful when it's when you're not talking to other people about what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And the way that you can begin to defeat shame is to talk about it. And it takes some of the power away from shame once you start to talk about it and realize that you're not the only one going through these things, that you're not the only one that um, is feeling or acting out in the ways that you are. And it's a larger f- thing about the show itself, which is it's like adults talking about childhood looking back. Maybe it's therapeutic for us, but also for kids who are going through it or who have just gone through it to let them know that they are not alone in going through it, that everybody goes through puberty, that everyone has these fucked up thoughts, that everybody is just trying to figure out and navigate this stuff. Um, and Or in the case of like someone like me, it's okay if you're a late bloomer. Like it's okay that you can't come yet. That you're you might have still have like a little boy dick. All that stuff that uh, hopefully will bring kids some solace and feel less ashamed of who they are and what they're doing. We'll be back with more Nick Kroll after this word from our sponsor. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. 
I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back. And we're back. I want to back up a little bit to the, I believe the first time I interviewed it, interviewed you was for the announcement that you were ending Crawlshaw after yes. the third season. And it was also around the same time the league was about to end. And so you had some acting parts lined up, but you sort of didn't have your next big thing. And there, it seemed like there was a deliberate pause because you had the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so looking back, can you describe how you felt in that moment? And do you remember like what you wanted next? Not specifically like what specifically, but like what did you want from what you wanted next? Yeah, I was physically exhausted uh, and I felt pretty drained creatively at that point. And I think also I was feeling very uh, recognized, which is this funny thing. And I don't know how many people are honest with you about this, but like, I, to me, I'm like anyone who's a comedian and an actor who gets into this and is like, like, I didn't know I was going to be famous. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you fucking did. Yeah. That's part of the reason you did it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which goes back to Nick being like, I was a little guy. I wanted to be funny and I wanted people to know who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I <laughs> and I seem to take that to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. And I felt like creatively we were done with Kroll Show. But I was just exhausted, and I and I was like, wanted to take a step back and think, like, what is it that I want to do? I wanted to clear the table and open myself up for new stuff. And right after that, I don't know if you guys know this, but Mulaney was canceled. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you That's heard about that. Yeah, it's not on the air anymore. Um, and it's poor guy. Yeah. The poor guy couldn't <laughs> got stuck there. He, he couldn't have figured it. He never figured it out. Yeah. But, um, Until you gave him this big break. <laughs> right, yes, yes, exactly. Um, but I think, you know, we cleared. I cleared the deck, and then John and I were like, let's do something with those guys. Like, that would be fun. And then Andrew, Mark, and Jen came to me with this show idea, the beginnings of it, which was Nick and Andrew, you know, about us as, as 13-year-olds. And it was an animated idea. And I think both of those things felt, immediately clear like yes Mm -hmm. i want to go do a play with john as george and gill like that sounds fun and then uh i want to do an animated show about something like important or like something big like puberty that i hadn't seen and animation felt great and right it was a way for me to do characters and not have to be in hours of makeup and wigs and crazy early call times and also my face wouldn't be front and center mm-hmm. on everything. Um, so both of those things just felt immediately like, great. I don't know if I had the expectation, like, I'll go do a Broadway play with <laughs> yeah. George and Gill. Or I'll go, like, do the most autobiographical thing I've ever done in animated form. I, that was not, like, an intention. But I do think it was, and it's been my sort of goal, and it was really out of Oh, Hello!, but it, it, but but Big Mouth supported that as well, which is like choosing things that seem either incredibly fun and interesting or that are about something that feel really big and 
important to the human yeah. condition. Uh, I want to talk about all hello with you specifically because I've talked to John about it a few times. And, you know, for him, he's like, oh, he's never been more comfortable than he is as that character, <laughs> as he says. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I talked to him about it, it sort of brought a certain com- uh, confidence and comfort with being angry on stage and sort of being more himself. And uh, Gil is different. The yeah. sort of the old joke, I don't remember who said it first, which was that uh, Gil and George are your essences, John is an asshole, and you're a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that it's interesting because though a lot of your characters, there was sort of the sensitivity underneath. I don't think anyone would necessarily describe them as sort of like babyish or baby-esque or sensitive in that way. Yeah. So in so much that John learned how to play himself more by being George, uh, how did you learn or become more comfortable being Nick, even when you're not in playing a character that is Nick, yeah. from playing Gil? Well, Gil, I think it's funny. Gil is described as a baby, and I think it's look. I am I am the youngest of four, so there is something about I am the baby. I, uh, um, but I also I think have spent so much of my career trying to um, produce stuff for myself and be uh, the sort of the boss. Uh, or the leader or mm-hmm. whatever it is of like, I got to go get Kroll Show made. And it's like, there weren't many opportunities for me to go be the baby. And I think doing Gil on stage one, I mean, just working with John makes you have to write better jokes because nobody writes a better joke. So I would say it's like in the off season deciding to practice with LeBron. Sure. But also the idea of like sitting back and letting someone else drive something mm-hmm. on stage. George, it's one of the great one of the great joys of all of this for me is that we do something like Oh Hello where George is the alpha and Gil is the beta and then we come to do Big Mouth and Nick is really the alpha and Andrew is the beta. And then you do Lola and Andrew, and it's this weird dynamic of, like, unclear who's the – I mean, you know, it's – so to me, to, to have a creative partnership that doesn't always follow the same exact uh, pattern is really uh, exciting. But I do think – as I think about it, I've, I haven't thought about it as much, I think, because, you know, John largely plays John. Yeah. Um, so for him to play George was a real departure for him. For me to play a character isn't as much of a departure, but in this case, a character that is this baby that needs to be taken care of, that uh, needs to be guided around, that is 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 not going to drive stuff, it was is and was very uh, helpful and exciting uh, to to be able to like not try to like run everything you know the fun thing on big mouth is that i get to play versions of those characters that not that character but you know alphas and betas and everything in between so and actually it wasn't until preparing for this interview i didn't realize that this idea was sort of brought to you Mm -hmm. because just because it's about your child it's like oh must have just been a thing but once you heard the idea about telling the story of this time how did it feel autobiographical about who you are now to be honest i have been somewhat hesitant to do things that are super autobiographical. I've always like hidden behind characters. I've always been more comfortable in that mm-hmm. space. Even my stand-up is oftentimes like sort of character driven and and it's one of the reasons that I like have always liked stand-up and not 
gone like f- full, you know, dove in head first because it's always like I don't want to tell people about yeah. my family or my relationships or what my real life is like. And I think to be a great stand-up, you oftentimes have to do that. So this show, I think, provided me with the vehicle to be much more autobiographical about what I was like as a kid. But again, there's so many things that I'm saying as Nick the 13-year-old that are Nick the adult man um, that are heightened and exaggerated and changed, but ultimately is very kind of revelatory about for sure who I was and oftentimes who I still am. Why do you think Big Mouth is better served than sort of a, the sort of comedian autobiographical show that's like a dramedy and it's set in Silver Lake or it's set in Uh Brooklyn? Why do you think Big Mouth is a better fit for you? Well, I think animation just allows you to go so much further and I love the, you know, dramedy, autobiographical-based shows, um, but I also felt like I think there's a place for that, but I love the idea of that we could tell some big fucking jokes and be super dirty and take some really big swings and still have some hopefully real emotionality and, and... like, you know, some real like resonance for what's going on in the, you know, in inside of ourselves that is driving these things. But I was excited to 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 do something like that that was um still, I guess, you know, somewhat self-protective that it's one it's animation, it's about me as a child, um, but still be talking about this stuff that I'm going through, but also have shame wizards and hormone yeah. monsters and you know, talking pillows and Sylvester Stallone and uh, sassy ladybugs and, uh, you know, and and everything else, the ghost of Duke Ellington, you know, just all of these things that we can do in animation that, you know, are just great tools. Yeah, I mean, there's the scene, I think, in the next episode where, your, where Nick gets high and he sees the Nick of the future in the alone zone and he's Nick, yeah, Nick is, Star. Yes, Nick Star. Nick who's, Star. Who's created a animated show about his adolescence. Yeah, an animated show, a cartoon on Nitflax about how he rocked as a kid. <laughs> and and he's like, uh, I think Andrew says, do, do you like it? And, or Nick says, do, do, do you like it? And he goes, I don't mind it. <laughs> um, and then he does dramatic work. but it's, it's a pure ego play. I like to say that I think people should, uh, when they win awards, should thank their psychologists. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I feel like that is so often for creative people process ideas, and it seems completely unfair that they never do. Yeah. Um, and you you do more than most, which you will acknowledge that you will talk to your therapist be, before or after going to the writer's room. Yeah. Can you talk about that sort of how a therapist helps with the creative process? Because I feel like it is completely not talked about, and it is unfair. Yeah. I mean, they should be getting writing credit. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean— Luckily, my therapist is is not. I mean, I think the problem is not again. It's about creating boundaries, sure. Uh, which is we've probably all talked about in therapy. Sure. But the idea that you know, I think there are probably some therapists that are like, I could be a writer if I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially therapists in LA. Yes, and <laughs> my therapist happens to be incredibly smart and funny, and someone who I do. Uh, I'm trying not to perform for her, uh, but I also am aware of being me being like well we're talking about and maybe this happens to nick but i think it's like for example like you know i was a very late bloomer um i didn't hit puberty until much after almost all of my friends i didn't like grow pubic hair until like i got to high school my three best friends in middle school 
all matured very early and were had pubes and were jerking off and everything around. And I was observing that. My process of puberty took a lot longer. Um, and season two of Big Mouth is really about Nick trying to figure out who and what his hormone monster is. And that's that changes and evolves throughout the season. And I think it was it's it's the kind of stuff that I was talking about in therapy, which is like my process of going through puberty just wasn't quite as like, boom, one day I had pubes and I was jerking off. <laughs> it was like observing other kids going through puberty, knowing that I should be not experiencing it immediately, slowly, you know, some kids I think dive right into the pool and some kids are going in step by step. Whether they're hesitant or not, it's just a different process. So I think there's stuff like that where I would go to my therapist and be like, well, we've been talking about the idea that Nick has this very young hormone monster, first-time hormone monster, uh, that we had a John Gamberling voice. And she was sort of like, yeah, that makes sense. Like your physical and emotional process was just at a different stage and, and pace than some of your friends. Like I, I think that makes sense. And then she'd be like, but, and then we would talk about like what happened to me when I got pantsed when I was in seventh grade, sure. what that effect that had on me then and, and still does. And then I go back to the room and I can say like, you know, and I'm not afraid of being like, well, in therapy, I was talking <laughs> sure. about like what that did to me, what that, to be exposed like that at that age in front of my crush, what that did to my confidence, what that did to my trust uh, in in other people, what that did to um, how I perceive myself or how I perceive the, the girls that I like um, then and now. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I, I am interested in, you know, I just, I'm like, you've got this resource. Why not use it? it, it uh, I was thinking about an old joke you had about uh, how dumb people are better at sex. Yeah. I mean, that joke is probably over 10 years old. I just haven't. about, yeah. How's that joke connected to this show? I think that joke was dumb people, I think dumb people have better sex than smart people because dumb people are like, hey, put, put me in you. <laughs> She's like, yeah, put you in me. Um. And then, and I can't even remember my half of the joke, but it's like smart people having sex. Like, is she liking this? Is this weird? Does she like this poster? I can't believe I have a Picasso poster <laughs> on my wall. Does she think that's pretentious or does she think that's lame? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I think it makes sense for a kid like Nick, me, to get pantsed as a kid. A dumb kid might be like, oh, my pants got pulled down. <laughs> but to a kid like me, a sensitive observant kid was like the girl I like just saw my penis I haven't hit puberty I don't have pubic hair I haven't physically matured yet she's gonna think I'm whatever I'm not adequate or whatever it is and that stuff really sits with you big mouth challenges what I think how a lot of teen comedies approach sex uh -huh. as that joke does right i think the stand-up most stand-up jokes about sex are like i was having this sex and it was so good i'm so good at sex or whatever yes no 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 <laughs> that is not my joke yeah um yeah or just that it's like that i think the general male version of a sex joke is like the only complicated thing about sex is that a woman won't give it to me <laughs> I think is the general, sure. and that joke can be a funny version of that joke can be wonderful. Yeah, that has not that was just not my experience with it. Women, it took a long time for women to want to give me sex, but it was, but that was not the thing about it for yeah. me. And I think that, 
you know, I don't know if it's common or uncommon, but it was my experience and it was something that I think there was room in, in, in the cultural conversation for. When I interviewed you that first time, I, I, I asked you sort of how did Kroll f- represent your point of view as a comedian and, uh, and, and how do you think it might represent your legacy? And sort of the main thing you pointed to was you were proud of the staff that you created and the, the people that you had on the show and that people will look back upon it as they did the Ben Stiller show. And, you know, I also sort of read this story about how you're offered the Independence Beard Awards and you decided you'd rather do it with John than by yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have this show, which has four co-creators. You have a scene that we're talking about that it's you talking you as yourself uh, you talking to a person who a character based on your best friend from childhood played by the best friend of your mm-hmm. adult comedy career is there a version of artistic success for you that is something you do alone jesse that's a question that you and my therapist can talk <laughs> to me about um yes I, I i i guess so it's very interesting it's like I, I I do struggle with the idea of like wow I'm I'm seem to be most at home collaboratively. Uh, I I I've realized over the years that I write verbally. Mm-hmm. I rarely sit down at a computer and write jokes. Whether I'm eventually going to do them on stage doing stand up or writing jokes for a special or the show or whatever, I just want to sit in a room and talk to people and and my brain works so much better, faster, and more prolifically that way than it does me sitting at a mm-hmm. computer or whatever. Um, I assume I will do stuff on my own. I still enjoy doing stuff on my own. I, I love doing stand-up by myself on stage. <laughs> um, but I also, I don't know, it just seems like so much more fun to be with my yeah. friends. <laughs> like, I, I don't, like, the idea of toiling alone in a room to write a book or toiling alone on the road to do a special or 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 writing a show that is my voice the like Nick's voice of like my experience it just seems like less fun yeah and i don't know i think it's a weird i i believe it to be a bizarre combination of ego and insecurity it's the insecurity of being like, I don't know if I could do something as good completely on my own. And the ego of being like, I can collaborate with people and still get the credit I believe I deserve <laughs> for the work that yeah. I do. Um, whether it's with John or without John, or whether it's with Andrew Goldberg, who I've known since first grade, or Jason Manzukis or Jesse Klein, or Jenny Slade, or or the people who are writing on our show, like Gil Ozeri or Joe Wengard, who I've known since like my early days at UCB, or uh, everything else that I've done. It's I like being part of a team. I like collaborating. Uh, it's no different than when I was like thirteen. I I I didn't tennis. I didn't love playing tennis. I liked playing basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked being part of a team to 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 uh, lift people up and be lifted up. There's uh, a story that you tell, I think Angie would also tell on stage about the first time he ever did stand-up, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, went disastrously in a way, but it ended up you you have a comedy career as a result. So sure, it's sure, a big success. it worked out. Can you describe the bit, but now from the context of a person who's success, how is that, this is similar to joke, uh, the question from before, but how is that 
bit do you feel like also fits into the career of the person who did Oh Hello and Big Mouth and um, all the things that he right. did? So the, the bit was I was a freshman at Georgetown. Uh, Mike Birbiglia was in the same contest. It was called The Funniest Act on Campus. Mike Birbiglia was also on it and eventually won, it won that contest uh, and got to be a, I think, get be the MC at the Washington, D, the DC Improv, mm-hmm. which was really fo- hoisted him into the first being in a yeah. comedy club. Um, I'd never done stand up before. I got, I was, I was like, I'll do this. I'm funny. And then I was got very drunk and stoned before because I was actually incredibly nervous about it. And my bit was going to be, I was going to get on stage and say, boy, I thought I was going to be so nervous, but I'm actually quite relaxed. And then pee my pants. Um, but I didn't feel confident that I would be able to pee on command. command. So I was like, I'll bring a water balloon and a pin. And then I, I'm I'm kind of doing it's weird. Like I'm doing the shorthand of the joke without the punchlines, which sure. makes it less funny, but also yeah. it feels somehow cheating to do the full joke <laughs> sure. in this com- capacity. Um I forgot the water balloon and pin because I was drunk and 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 showed up and then was rummaging through the garbage and found a plastic bag and a pen filled the plastic bag with water, got on stage and then started to like jam the plastic bag with my pen, looked like I was masturbating on stage to try to pee myself. Uh, it did not work. Uh, and then I basically told the audience what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bombed. And I just actually talked to Mike about it. And Mike was his girlfriend, Maggie, at the time, was like, you should watch this guy's thing. I've never seen someone bomb this badly, but in such an interesting way. And I think it – I I appreciate you walking me into this realization, uh, which is it was uh, a kind of an interesting premise – uh, haphazardly executed and in the dissection of what it was I was doing found what was to me very honest, relatable and uh, interesting whether it was funny or not <laughs> is up for debate Sure, but it was sort of like I don't mind taking a risk and and kind of failing and, and figuring out uh, and uh, like and, and, and going from there and I think like that has been um, like I think that's like the advantage of having like a loving home. Uh, my parents on the show are caricatures of my parents, but they are loving and supportive people. And I think like the idea that I'd be like, yeah, I'll get on stage and, you know, pop a plastic bag filled yeah. with water and it'll pee and it'll be funny. And then it doesn't <laughs> work. It's like, oh, well, that didn't work, but I'm still OK. I'm not going to like die. this isn't going to kill me. And that you would share t- with the audience all about it. Yeah, it was just like here's what's happening, you know. Um uh I think uh it was kind of yeah, it's it's it was not a bad first version of what my yeah. career has largely been. <laughs> that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's uh, the laughing round. It's like a lightning round but because it's comedy, it's laughing round. Right. The first thing I would if you're willing, that I'd like you to do is a uh, I'm calling it a character chain. So in it, you will uh, do one of your characters saying the name of another one of your characters, uh-huh. and then do that character saying the name of another one, and then you'll stop. Uh, well, I will start with the character of Nick, which uh, this is Nick 
the thirteen-year-old Nick, very different than the adult Nick, uh, who is friends with uh, Coach Steve. Who is? Am I doing this right now? I don't remember how the game works. This is, you know. I'm not very good with memory stuff, but that, you know, that's fine, because my friend Marie, Maurice, the hormone monster, is here. Am I not doing I still don't think I'm doing the game right, but that's all right, because life is a game filled with cum and farts and fights and wonderful people like Lola. So, like, honestly, it's, like, actually very much an honor to be at, like, New York Magazine because, like, ultimately, I've always wanted to be on the approval matrix, <laughs> but not near the center, like, far off on the top right near, like, whatever, like, Chris and Shaw is doing these days. But hey, you know, Sebastian Stallone, he's a great guy. He's never been on the approval matrix. Maybe, you know, he does the Spendables uh, 7. It would be ironic. It would be great, you know. But, oh, man, how are we going to get into the ladybug? Yeah, that's right. I'm the ladybug. And I am here to be a meta commentary on everything that just has happened as if the other characters weren't themselves filled with meta commentary about this entire process. So that's me, the ladybug. Peace, bitches. If you could be Quantum Leap style, like in the body of another comedian while they're performing a set of any comedian ever, so because it's Quantum Leap, it can go in the uh -huh. past. What comedian and where would they be performing? I think I would like want to Frankenstein a comedian. <laughs> like I'd want the charm and talent of Eddie Murphy delirious without the problematic <laughs> sure. material. Yeah. I would want the poetic joke writing of like a Mitch Hedberg one-liner. I want the relationship of Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner on stage together. I think the seeming silliness uh, and goofiness of Steve Martin, which underneath is incredibly calculated right. and uh, deeply uh, uh, scientifically scripted of uh, Steve Martin, those would be some. But then I would also like old Ellen stand-up where she's just just writing perfect jokes and delivering them. I mean, I, I watch, you know, I've been watching. I mean, the other thing is it's crazy. I've been watching my friends do stand-up for the last many years who I think are the funniest people around. Like, you know, the way that John gets on stage and, and people almost immediately understand his perspective on the world and how good a storyteller he is by, but also so performatively gifted and, and, smart and yet accessible or I don't know, you know, I'm, I've been watching Ali Wong a bunch in LA recently and how f smart and, and in control of her instrument she is and, and how funny and ballsy she is and how dirty she is and honest and truthful. It's like, you know, so it's, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of people, uh, as would be perfect for this whole interview. It's like, I'm like, like, I don't want to just be <laughs> yeah, one person. You want to, like, pop it. I want to pop in. I, I, there's things I admire from a lot of different people. If you could uh, steal another comedian's joke, in so much as that you are, it's yours now, like it never was theirs, uh -huh. they, no one will ever know that they told the joke, so you're not going to get in trouble. You might know, but it doesn't really matter. 
So it's now your joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, what joke? My early days in New York, a comedian named Roger Hales, uh, who I came up uh, through open mics and and the early book shows with like Roger and Chelsea Peretti and and a couple other people. Roger had a joke that I think about all the time that I still love, which is I'm gonna bit butcher it sure. a little bit, but it was basically like. You know when you there's like an asshole at a party and you're like that guy's an asshole and your friend is like no he's not an asshole he's just insecure and you're like if he's so insecure then why is he drunk and throwing raisins <laughs> at me shouldn't he be home doubting himself <laughs> and I just thought that was always I just that that joke just always struck me as so true yeah um that's like yes. your favorite characters yeah. in Big Mouth yeah 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 exactly it's true. Do you have a joke that never worked, uh, but in your head will go? You'll go to the grave being like, "This is so funny." The audiences were always wrong, but it is. Well, there's a punchline that I have right now of a joke that I've been telling about uh, how f- cool I think it is that Barack Obama smokes, <laughs> um, and that I would try to bum if I saw him at a party. I'd try. I quit smoking, but I would bum a cigarette <laughs> off him if I saw it. And I kind of have this conversation where. I, I kind of am like, hey, man, oh, like, uh, what's your name? Hmm. I mean, Barack, I don't know. What's your real name? You know, like, <laughs> where, where are you from? Where are you really from? And then I go, you don't, you don't look like Moana. And then I go, I'm just kidding. I'm actually a really big fan. Uh, I say that ending to it, it has never gotten a laugh. Like, I'm actually a really big fan. To me, it's so funny. Yeah. To me, and maybe it's because it's my experience of, having people come up to me and talk to me and pretending they don't know me, mm-hmm. but knowing clearly who I am and then admitting that they're a fan or something like that. I don't know. I always find that funny and no audience has ever laughed at it <laughs> and I can't stop yeah. finishing it. It's partly laziness where I'm like, I should just go and rewrite that end of the joke. I can't seem to do it. All right. I think that's, I think yeah. we did it. Great. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can stream Big Mouth and Human Resources on Netflix. Follow Nick on social media at Nick Kroll. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Godman Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.